This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news. We begin with breaking news, of course. This is an ABC News special report. And we have a decision just breaking from the Supreme Court. On the U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, we're coming on the air with breaking news. The Supreme Court has just rejected a challenge. Good to the morning. Court. We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, September 22nd, 2022, and we're back with our third episode of our new season of Polylog. How the media covers the United States Supreme Court. Episode 3, Reverence of the Court, and the myth of an apolitical institution. That's right. The court demands reverence and acts in ways that reinforce that reverence. And supporting this is the myth of the court as an apolitical institution. We'll talk about both of these topics today. So, Naomi, oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is what happens when Brendan writes the intro. <laughs> so let's start us off with reverence. <laughs> so speaking of that grand ceremony, right? I think that's a perfect way to have us talking about this kind of key pillar of this work, which is judicial reverence is influenced by people who want the institution to be apolitical. It's influenced by the court itself, which wants to be viewed as apolitical. And it's influenced by a national press that caters to these very two different desires. So what does that mean? So essentially, there's very few places that are actively calling out the problems of judicial reverence. What do you think judicial reverence means, Brendan? What, what what does that kind of trigger to you? Or Well, I mean, I think for me, what stands out is one of the few places we see the justices live ever is in the State of the Union address. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. Oh, we're going to be talking about the State of the Union. Mm-hmm. They're wearing their black robes, so they look kind of ridiculous, and they sit there, and like the members of the military, they don't clap. Well. And they just, you know, they're beyond it all. These are these are good images to have in our mind. Actually, anytime the court is together in public as a group, they're in their robes. It's not just in the State of the Union. Oh, interesting. Yes. That's an interesting point. Yeah. We never see them. They only wear suits when they're on their own. As a group, they're, I'm, I'm saying this kind of jokingly, but it's true. Like, it's the only time you see them in, like, non-robe wear um, as a group. What's plural for justice? Justices? I don't understand what you're saying. I think it's the berobed. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, right? If there's more than one justice, they're in a robe. But, okay, so let's break down what we mean by judicial reverence. Those images are definitely helpful. And and it's not that we don't think it's, they're not an important part of our government systems. They're not an important check. On the other two branches, what we tend to be really frustrated by and kind of some of the underpinnings of what you're describing, Brendan, is that the court is pretty important and they think they're so important. They're kind of above the banality of politics and they don't deserve scrutiny. Strict and, scrutiny. <laughs> Isn't that one of the podcasts, I think? Oh, I don't, probably. Hello, and welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. I'm your host for today. I'm Leah Littman, and I am delighted. I think that's one of the podcasts I was <laughs> mentioning. But we would argue that this is true also not just in how the court behaves, but people's expectation of the court, too, how the court conducts themselves and how the media covers them. But... If you're any fan of Polylog, you know that we think institutions deserve scrutiny. Another way of thinking about this, too, is kind of like if you're a little stuck on what we mean around judicial reverence is judicial supremacy. Yes. Which I admit to me, I feel like, all right, we're being we're, we're getting a little much with this language, like calm down, people. 
there's a lot of articles if you do a search on judicial supremacy around especially people who want to reform the court or reevaluate our relationship with the court they often use this term judicial supremacy which makes me think of white supremacy there's other supremacies that we don't yeah, like supremacy is not like it's not a word you like to use exactly and i like it really had to confront like why i felt so icky about it and i tried to kind of disentangle what i meant by reverence versus what i'm associate with supremacy and for really what it came down to me is like the execution of that relationship so i do think it's possible to have reverence and accountability but what we have is a supreme court so far from the mere possibility of accountability Mm -hmm. and american public so drunk on the kool-aid that this extreme reverence is the norm even when it's not deserved and we kind of end up in this normalization of judicial supremacy it's kind of hard to realize it when you're in it, so to speak. Yeah, you know what it also makes me think of, if we're just free associating here, is like reverence for the monarchy. institutions that demand you know it's there's a very classist way of thinking about it right oh yeah i mean (laughs) this wasn't isn't on our agenda but there was a lot of kind of think pieces where there were just like you know the monarch and the queen was apolitical (sighs) and you know blah 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 all these things but at the same time like she held the balance among prime ministers and in peace and in war it's just like you either do that because you have political power or you don't because you don't have that power right like you can't claim all those accomplishments those political accomplishments and also be able to say you're apolitical like it doesn't really make sense so anyway going back to our american institutions I think judicial supremacy is a relevant way of thinking about our relationship and just kind of general understanding of the court. And I totally understand if you feel a little weird about the term. I felt that way about it, too. So what's your just give us a you know, we're talking about the term and how we feel about it. But what does that mean to you? What is the what is the strict definition of judicial supremacy? I mean, I don't know if I have a strict definition. I, I have kind of, I think, some key examples of where we see it and we don't even realize there's like anything weird about it so i think a few examples of judicial supremacy might look like there being national outrage because president obama expressed his frustration on the citizens united decision um in a state of a union speech Mm -hmm. with all due deference to separation of powers last week the supreme court reversed a century of law that i believe will open the floodgates for special interests including foreign corporations to spend without limit in our elections. That was a big, big deal because he said he didn't approve of it. And, you know, there was like a lot of like grumpy, grumpy, mean faces by the justices. And it was had never been done before, if you remember. With them in the room. How did. And even after that, like within a few days, there was a big to do when Chief Justice Roberts issued a statement criticizing the comment about the Citizens United decision in the State of the Union speech. Well, first of all, um, I think anybody can criticize the Supreme Court without uh, any qualm. You know, we do it enough in our dissents, right? So uh, uh, I think people should feel perfectly free to criticize uh, what we do. Some people, I think, have an uh, obligation to criticize what we do, given their office, if they think we've done something wrong. So I have no problems with that. On the other hand, as you said, there is the issue of the setting, the circumstances, uh, and the decorum. The um, image of having the members of one branch of government uh, standing up, literally surrounding the Supreme Court, cheering and hollering, while the court, according to the requirements of protocol, has to sit there uh, expressionless, uh, I think is very troubling. And it does cause you to think whether or not uh, it makes sense for us to be there. Uh, this, to the extent the State of the Union has degenerated into a political pep rally, uh, I'm not sure why we're there. Judicial supremacy or judicial extreme judicial reverence might also look like 
the fact that we think it's natural and expected and necessary that the Supreme Court justices don't clap, don't stand during the State of the Union, kind of like you mentioned earlier, Brendan. It also means that people are dismissive of even the most basic court reforms or don't even know that court reforms might be necessary. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about like packing the court or term limits. I'm even talking about like the most basic code of ethics for the Supreme Court, which are not in place for the highest court, but are in place for lower federal courts beneath them. Yeah. (laughs) It also might mean that the you know judicial reverence or supremacy might look like the court itself resists meaningful media coverage there are no videos during oral arguments justices say that they resist video coverage because they think their questions or their comments will be taken out of context when kind of shared or, or when it goes viral online what most of the american people would see would be 30 second 15 second takeouts from our argument, and those takeouts would not be characteristic of what we do. That literally happens to everybody on the internet. Like, if you are on the internet, you're taking out of context. Like, that's just the cost of being a public figure. Yeah, like, I don't really like things are also taken out of context all the time. All the time. Absolutely. I think judicial reference also means Supreme Court justices never sit for media interviews unless they have a book they're trying to shill on us, <laughs> essentially. I would also say that there is neither in kind of institutional governance process for accountability that is shared with the public, nor is there an opportunity for outside legal experts or journalists to be able to provide that scrutiny as well. Like the whole notion of accountability is just resisted on multiple fronts. So I have more to say about the press, but Brendan, your immediate reactions around what this might look like in terms of the court and the people. Well, I do think it's really important to be talking about this because there seems to be almost an acceptance of the court's distant relationship to the press, its distant relationship to any form of accountability, and this sense of reverence, right? And it's what, you know, you might expect from from a monarchy or some other position that is just held in such high esteem that it is above reproach, right? Beyond reproach. And so I think it's important to get to the root of this and also understand all the ways, big and small, that reinforce it. From, you know, as small as the oyez, oyez, oyez at the start of the arguments, (laughs) right? right? Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. To the, to the wardrobe, to the clapping, to the lack of media appearances, to the lack, like all of this stuff is rooted in this idea that is reinforcing this Right, reverence. at every opportunity, they're trying to create distance. Yeah. Not access. Absolutely. And I think the press, I, I think they accept and enable this judicial supremacy in oh a way God, that's yes. not true of other branches of government. To protect their own kind of very limited access to the court, journalists who cover the Supreme Court do not push. You know, journalists, justice journalists, legal journalists, Supreme Court journalists will often examine and explain decisions, but not much of the court itself or provide scrutiny of failed processes or archaic processes. Yeah, I mean, one thing we've got to share is this insane clip of Terry Moran who is a top justice reporter for ABC News, talking about the person who leaked the early Dobbs decision. Just listen to how he talks about this. John Roberts, he has to say that, that it won't damage the credibility or integrity of the court's operations, but But it it does. does. It does. Externally, it drags them into this, we're just busting down the guardrails of our democracy left and right. Somebody leaks a Supreme Court opinion, they're just, it's like Twitter. Right. It's 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 they're in the muck of our politics and that damages their credibility because the only authority the court has, they don't have any police force or anything like that to enforce their decisions. It's the trust and confidence of the American people. This damages that. There's so much outrage for the institution. Yes. Rather than like talking about what it means and what the leaked draft is going to how it's going to impact people like your job is not to defend and 
and strengthen these outdated (laughs) norms. I mean, how can you be a reporter and speak the way that we just heard about an institution you supposedly cover, right? Like, what, what, you don't believe in openness, in understanding more about the institution? I mean, would you say that the Pentagon Papers, would you stand up and say, how dare someone leak the Pentagon Papers from the DOD? How dare we expose over a decade of secrets and misleading the public on Vietnam? Like, you, you don't agree with that? Well, and this is especially hysterical because there are theorists who think that this probably came from one of the conservative judges to lock in votes rather than it was leaked from a liberal justice to kind of scare the public. So obviously we don't know which way that goes, but it seems there's a lot more motivation to lock in the votes than it was to disclose where the vote was going. I would also say the media enables this relationship that we have with the court, they enable this judicial supremacy in letting them get a pass for so much. Media organizations don't mention if they've tried to reach the Supreme Court justice for an interview. They don't remind people that Supreme Court justices will not sit for interviews or comment. You know, if you think about kind of a bad week for the White House, whether it's the Biden administration or the Trump administration a few years ago, the Sunday news shows would have mentioned we invited someone from the White House to come and speak to us about X, Y, Z thing. They failed. You know, they declined to come. Right now, it is of the utmost importance for the White House to provide you, the American people, with information, accurate information, factual information about the president's condition. We asked the White House for someone to be here to do just that today. We asked for the vice president or the chief of staff or the communications director or the president's physician. We asked for members of the coronavirus task force, including Health Secretary Azar or Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks or the Surgeon General or the director of the NIH or the CDC director or the top vaccine advisor or Jared Kushner or the national security advisor. The White House declined to provide any of them any of them or we invited every republican on the transportation committee to talk about the infrastructure plan and they decided they declined to come or whatever it might be there's none of that none of that mentioned and reminded that the supreme court just doesn't want to talk to us and they don't even and beyond that media organizations do not attempt to explain that solid wall between the court and the people I'm thinking like even in newsy, non-opinion related stories. So, for instance, this year there was a story. um, Clarence Thomas was at a conservative think tank and he was talking about the integrity of the court. Uh, If someone said that one line of one opinion would be leaked by anyone and you would say that, oh, that's impossible. No one would ever do that. There's such a. Uh, belief in the rule of law, belief in the court, a belief in what we were doing, that that was verboten. It was beyond anyone's understanding, or at least anyone's uh, imagination, that someone would do that. And look where we are, where now that trust or that belief is gone forever. Um, the, and when you lose that trust, especially in the institution that I'm in, uh, it changes the institution fundamentally. Uh, You begin to look over your shoulder. It's like kind of an infidelity uh, that you can explain it, but you can't undo it. There was also an instance where Justice Samuel Alito was speaking to a religious group in Rome and mocking foreign press coverage about the Dobbs decision. Over the last few weeks since I had the honor this term of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders (laughs) who felt perfectly fine commenting on American law. One of these was uh, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but he paid the price. Post hoc ergo propter hoc, right? <laughs> but others are still yeah, are still in office. President Macron and uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, I believe, are too. But what really wounded me, what really wounded me, 
was when the Duke of Sussex addressed the <laughs> United Nations and seemed to compare the decision whose name may not be spoken with the Russian attack on Ukraine. In the articles dis- talking about either scenario, neither article mentions that justices are not required to share their schedule about where they will be speaking and to what groups. Like they are just not required to. So it's very difficult for press to be there if they're not promoted by the host organization or given permission by the host organization to disclose that the justice is going to be there. Their schedule is not available under any FOIA requests to determine where they're going to go or where they've spoken to. They are not expected to share transcript of everywhere they've given a speech. There's rarely any acknowledgement in our media ecosystem that talks about this extreme freedom that they have as political players in our government system that just doesn't exist for people, you know, high level people in other branches of government. It's as if they themselves want to act like they're completely apolitical, which I'm Brendan, I think you're going to be talking about in yes. a little bit. Yes, I will. No, but, you, but you're totally right. There's been this there and there continues to be reporters who are just fine with transcribing essentially what the justices say if they're able to even get that yeah they they're like the 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 court reporter oh my gosh <laughs> i'm so sorry everyone but that's I what i know but seriously but that's what a court reporter i you know, know. but i wanted to have you know like a quick discussion before we talk about the apolitical nature or desires of the court just this kind of overall reverence in trying to think, you know, wrap my head around like how we even start pulling at these strings. Like, what do you think is the order of operations to fix it? Is it reforms? Is it press? Is it kind of media consumer wants? Like, is it a little bit all at once? Like, what would be the most meaningful way to start like chipping away at this unnecessary reverence, Brendan? That's a great question because a lot of it Some of it feels like it's in control of the court and the justices, right? I mean, no one's going to change what they choose to wear. If they want to wear their robes, that's Mm -hmm. fine. Famously, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was the Chief Justice before John Roberts, (laughs) liked to put, he like added these like gold stripes. Oh, I think I remember, maybe you mentioned it to me or maybe I read it somewhere. I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah, gold stripes to his robe. Because he had seen it in like a Gilbert and Sullivan production. Oh my god! And he thought it he like he liked it and thought it was like reverential, additionally reverential, and so he he wore that on his robe. And there were questions about whether when John Roberts became Supreme Court, you know, Chief Justice, whether he would continue the the new tradition of putting these additional like gold stripes on his robe, and he did not continue that tradition. But what I'm saying is. We're not going to control what the justices wear, right? But we can control how we talk about the court and whether we recognize the court as an extremely powerful part of our political government. It is a part of our government. They are not an apolitical part of the government, right? right? And there are apolitical parts of the government, right? And 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 it's true there are. I mean, someone who just works as a, I don't know, a, a, an economist somewhere is not necessarily working politically, right? Or someone who is a, uh, you know, uh, someone who works for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is not necessarily politically engaged in their work, and they're not political appointees who we Just expect, Scientists, right? social scientists. Yes, exactly, yeah. scientists or social scientists. Right. You know, there's plenty of people just doing their jobs. But the justices aren't that. They are political appointees, and they hold and wield great political power. So... We shouldn't treat them like they don't, because that's not true. Yeah, that's it's definitely not true. They have a whole lot of power. And I want to talk about that political power. But before we do, I just had one more question for you. And that's, do you think judicial supremacy exists at the state and local levels as well? Absolutely. I mean, it begins and ends with all rise, the honorable, right? It's just built in these these like honors and it's built in. Yeah, I would even say it's probably worse at the state and local level with really significant impact and the ignorance is even higher. And you see that at so many different levels. Like, we are pretty politically plugged in people. And I can't tell you a single name on the California State Supreme Court. Well, 
with the exception of Leandra Kruger, who was for consideration for the most recent Supreme Court opening. But in general, we we don't know who are who are the justices at the state level. I would say even at the kind of even more local level, even more so. And these are people we are voting in. I think we talked about this in our teaser episode or maybe our first episode. I don't really remember anymore, Brendan. But when you're voting for a judge and you look at your ballot, it's impossible to find information on them. It's extremely difficult as an average voter to find what their record is, where they went to school. Even the most basic like Wikipedia, oh, I think it's like it's Ballotpedia, it has like nothing on that. Atrocious. Yes. If you look at, if, if you go to kind of an organization that does kind of like uh, the voter file or like the, the, the ballot recommendations and who they're endorsing, they rarely include judicial races it's because so it's so hard to analyze and scrutinize and give recommendations as to what would be appropriate for a judge like it's just it's so bad to be to meaningfully vote it's it's very difficult even if you want to and so and i think a lot of it a lot of that stems from our national norms and the overall judicial supremacy that we have accepted of the united states supreme court and what would you say because we're both extremely skeptical of this judicial supremacy but what is the case for it? Why is it important? Obviously, there's tradition that makes us keep doing these things, but what would be the argument for why it's so important for us to have this reverence for the Supreme Court? That's very interesting. So there are, I think, extremely valid criticisms of court reforms that essentially note that there have been plenty of times in this country where the popular opinion was the wrong opinion and the Supreme Court helped us in the direction of progress. You can say that of Brown versus Board of Education. You could think of the Loving's decision around interracial marriage. Like the reaction of the public to those rulings. No, prior to those rulings, right. the American public had accepted something that was very wrong, mm-hmm. right? Like the fact that black and white kids couldn't go to school together, like unacceptable. And that the Supreme Court ruled against what was accepted in the public opinion. Right. And so that there is a benefit to having some distance to be able to kind of make those types of rulings that what is popular might not necessarily be right. But I don't think that means accountability is impossible. I don't think that means you don't get meaningful scrutiny. I don't think that means you never have to answer any question. Yeah, like, yeah truly. There's plenty of people who have reverence for the White House, who have reverence for the Capitol, who have reverence for these like important buildings and governmental bodies. And positions, like and the position, position of the presidency right. has a lot of reverence, even if you don't like who the president is Correct. at any given time. Yeah. And I don't think that means there's zero scrutiny. And that's the part that like makes me the most irate. I think that makes a lot of sense. So, Brendan, we got to talk about how this court actually has political power. Yes. Enlighten the masses. Well, let's first talk about what the masses want. So, according, either the public wants a court that is apolitical. According to a national survey by Pew that was done just this year, 84% of adults surveyed say that the Supreme Court and that justices on the court should not bring their own political views into the cases that they decide. 84% say that. And we see this idea everywhere, that the Supreme Court is a court that is above politics. We already talked about the justices wearing their robes and not clapping to appear to cheer for one political side or the other, even though we might be able to guess knowing what we know now, who would clap for what, right? But Jeannie Thomas would not clap for Biden. Just just putting that out there. Yeah. yeah. John Roberts famously said in his confirmation hearing that the role of a justice is simply to call balls and strikes. Mr. Chairman, I come before the committee with no agenda. I have no platform. Judges are not politicians who can promise to do certain things in exchange for votes. I have no agenda but I do have a commitment. If I am confirmed, I will confront every case with an open mind. 
I will fully and fairly analyze the legal arguments that are presented. I will be open to the considered views of my colleagues on the bench. And I will decide every case based on the record, according to the rule of law, without fear or favor, to the best of my ability. And I will remember that it's my job to call balls and strikes and not to pitch or bat. Like the umpire of a game of politics being played by opposing teams, the umpire is on no team. Justice is famously blind. Some Supreme Court justices throughout history have not merely agreed with that statement, but they tried to live this value. Take, for example, John Marshall Harlan II, who was appointed by Eisenhower and served until 1971. He didn't even vote in presidential elections. He could go work for the New York Times, right? (laughs) (laughs) But even very political people, by the way, just as an aside, as we're talking about, like, class and this like classist idea of reverence, John Marshall Harlan II, his grandfather also was a Supreme Court justice. (laughs) Yeah, because why not, right? Nepotism, (laughs) it's everywhere in America. (laughs) But even very political people, right? This John Marshall Harlan, he was apolitical. You know, he didn't even vote in presidential elections, supposedly. His dad too, no, just kidding. (laughs) But even very political people influencing the judiciary in very political ways talk in ways that make the court and courts seem apolitical, like President Trump. Here he is nominating Amy Coney Barrett to the court in an extremely political move. But here's, here's the words that even President Trump used. Now we gather in the Rose Garden to continue our never ending task of ensuring equal justice and preserving the impartial rule of law. Today, it is my honor to nominate one of our nation's most brilliant and gifted legal minds to the Supreme Court. And here is Mitch McConnell. You know, we played a clip from him last week where he was crowing about appointing 200 federal judges under the Trump administration. Well, here's the rest of his quote where he's talking about how these judges, they're not political. And following number 200, when we depart this chamber today, there will not be a single circuit court vacancy anywhere in the nation for the first time in at least 40 years. Not be a single circuit court vacancy anywhere in the nation for the first time in at least 40 years. As I've said many times, Madam President, our work with the administration to renew our federal courts is not a partisan or political victory. It's a victory for the rule of law and for the Constitution itself. If judges applying the law and the Constitution as they're written strikes any of our colleagues as a threat to their political agenda, then the problem, I would argue, is with their agenda. This is so rich. Just... (laughs) If you don't like it, the problem lies not in me, but in you. Yeah. And 100 years ago, that would have been like, you're not happy being a black man in this country. Why are you black? Like, that's the same exact thing. So political people, here they are. And here's Mitch McConnell saying it's the rule of law. That's just how it is. We decide who (laughs) we decide who decides the rule of law. And then we say, look, it's the rule of law. There's nothing political about it. And extremely political organizations like the Federalist Society and its extremely ideological members on the court, like current Associate Justice Samuel Alito, say that the organization isn't political at all. It is not an advocacy group. Unlike other bar groups, it does not take a position on any issue. It doesn't propose legislation or lobby or testify before Congress or file briefs in the Supreme Court or any other court. It holds events like this convention at which issues are debated and discussed openly and civilly. Anybody can join the society and anybody can attend events like this convention. Most members of the society are conservative in the sense that they want to conserve our constitution and the rule of law, but members, members disagree about many important things. And then, literally, the rest of his speech, talking about things like defending the opposition to same-sex marriage. And then, on the other side of the ideological spectrum, 
Stephen Breyer, recently retired Supreme Court justice, said last year that justices are not junior-level politicians. He said, quote, I believe jurisprudential differences account for most, perhaps almost all, judicial disagreements. It's just jurisprudence. It's not politics. So if the public wants a court that does not make decisions based on politics, if the very political politicians appointing justices say that's what these justices are doing, if the justices reaffirm it again and again, why do we have such a political court, right? I mean, this is a perfect example of the emperor has no clothes. Because we do have a political court. We know that. We've seen, and we've talked about it, Naomi, in our previous episodes, statistically, how the court is more political today than people realize. We looked at that PNAS study saying that their decisions align perfectly with Republicans, the way Republican Americans think the court should decide things, and not the way the median voter or the way a Democratic person would decide things. But I wanted to know, has it always been like this? Have justices represented the party that appointed them in the past? Have they seemed to deliver rulings based on ideology and not the facts of the case? Have they literally lied or ignored pertinent facts to reach their desired opinions? And has Congress and the presidency always tried to control the court, even in ways that seem like blatant manipulation, as we saw with none other than Mitch McConnell, right? Holding that seat open for Trump to fill the vacancy during Obama's term. That this appointment should be made by the next president. So this uh, vacancy will not be filled this year. We will uh, look forward to the American people deciding who they want to make this appointment through their own uh, votes. So to find out, I read several books on the history of the court. And my God, do I have some stories to tell. Oh my gosh, Brennan has so many stories, guys. He's just been like bursting with Supreme Court drama. It's been very hard not to share these stories. (laughs) So here's some stories. I, I really, really took an effort to cull them and distill them down to the best ones only. Okay, so the... Your conclusion is that the court is now a mess and it used to be perfect. The, no, but the, no. The short answer is to all those questions that I had before is yes. <laughs> the court has been very political from the beginning. But the long answer, I promise you all, it is very entertaining. And by the way, where is this? This entertainment could be in our news. News as entertainment is not a bad thing. And there's some entertaining history here (laughs) that we're missing that our news should have more of. Okay? So, I I divided this into, like, little headlines, right? Here's my little headline ahead of the story, and then I'll tell you these little anecdotes, okay? So, first headline. The political nature of the court goes back so far, okay? In 1810, okay, this is a long time. In 1810, when a Federalist justice... Now, this is how far we're going back, right? There were Federalists. When a Federalist justice, William Cushing, died, Thomas Jefferson said, quote, I observe old Cushing is dead. The event is a fortunate one, and so timed as to be a godsend to me. At length, then, we have a chance of getting a Republican majority in the Supreme Court. That was Thomas Jefferson. Literally, I mean, could we not hear the exact same thing from Republican or Democratic presidents now? The exact same thing. Literally, Trump said that, I think. Yes. <laughs> in 2016. I mean, honestly, Trump was nicer in his speech introducing Amy Coney Barrett to the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg than Thomas Jefferson is to William Cushing here. Over the past week, our nation has mourned the loss of a true American legend. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a legal giant and a pioneer for women. Her extraordinary life and legacy will inspire Americans for generations to come. Even before 1810, by the way, in 1800, the start of the Supreme Court's term that year, which, by the way, the country hadn't even been around like 30 years at that point. <laughs> in 1800, the start of their term had to be delayed because Justice Chase was campaigning for John Adams' candidacy for the presidency. That's so hilarious to think of a justice campaigning. Yes, literally out there campaigning and campaigning so hard 
that he's like, look, guys, that, I'm a, I'm unavailable. I'm unavailable to change do the, the schedule, guys. Yeah, yeah, we got to push this back because I I got to I got to do this campaigning. So back to Jefferson here. Jefferson shows up a lot, and the more I learn about him, the more I'm like, oh God, this guy, man. <laughs> Here's the next headline: Thomas Jefferson's Republicans try to impeach unfriendly justices. Okay, now I'm going to quote here from Charles Warren, whose book is The Supreme Court in the United States, all right, in United States history. They contended, these Jefferson Republicans, that impeachment must be considered a means of keeping the court in reasonable harmony with the will of the nation, as expressed through Congress and the executive, and that a judicial decision declaring an act of Congress unconstitutional would support impeachment and the removal of a judge, who thus constituted himself an instrument of opposition to the course of government. Think about that, right? So basically... Thomas Jefferson's Republicans reasoned that if the Supreme Court deemed a law unconstitutional, then that was grounds to impeach the members of the court, to remove the members of the court, which the Congress has the power to do. Ultimately, Republicans couldn't get the two-thirds majority in the Senate to convict the Supreme Court justice they wanted to impeach at the time. Hold on. I, d- yeah. I just love, like, even the exploration of impeaching a justice. Like, yes. we don't even acknowledge that there's an exit strategy with these people other than retirement and death. <laughs> yeah, but that was an option that many Congresses tried to, t- tried to use, you know? Here's another headline. Congress changing rules to deprive a president of appointments. Sound familiar? So Congress hated, hated President Andrew Johnson after the Civil War. So Congress passed a law reducing the Supreme Court membership from, at that time, 10 members. Now, we have nine now. They reduced it from 10 justices on the Supreme Court to seven justices. So they didn't fire three justices. What they did was they said that vacancies would not be filled until the membership decreased to six, and then you had to fill it to get to seven, right? This deprived president johnson of appointing any justices during his presidency i mean johnson was terrible so it's probably a good call by that congress but (laughs) still wow yeah like that's even bigger than you know uh, mcconnell McConnell. not having having any hearings for obama's justice i mean they literally said there are now seven justices on the court just bam willy-nilly nothing all right here's another headline Congress changing court jurisdiction to stop judicial review. So there's this concept, as we know, of judicial review. The concept of the court can deem a law unconstitutional. It's a big deal. It's a big part of the way that the court holds the presidency and Congress accountable. Well, in 1867, the Supreme Court heard a case that could potentially see it strike down the Reconstruction Act which put much of the South under military government after the Civil War. So Congress didn't like the possibility of the Supreme Court calling its law unconstitutional. So what did they do? They passed a law stripping the court of its jurisdiction to hear the case. Isn't that a novel idea? But it's true. Congress has that power over the court. The Constitution says Congress can decide the court's jurisdiction, and that's what they did. The bill passed the House and the Senate. Now, it was vetoed by that very same President Johnson, but the ho- both houses overrode the veto, and the act became law, and guess what? The Supreme Court couldn't hear that case. Wow, that's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Here's another headline for you. Political favors as appointments, Okay. Earl Warren, who would become the most influential chief justice in modern history, right? Whoever saw the Brown v. Board of Education decision. Correct. As well as other hugely influential decisions like redrawing congressional districts to say that they had to be have equal people in them, which wasn't the case before that, which is insane. Anyway, Earl Warren was a politician through and through. He served as a three-term Republican governor of California. Think about that. And he was nominated to be the Republican vice presidential candidate for Thomas E. Dewey's run. Remember that famous picture that says Dewey beats Truman? Right, 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 right. Yeah, totally. He would have been been vice president if that had been true. That's crazy. Yes. Wow. A Republican vice president. Now, in 1952, he campaigned tirelessly for President Eisenhower in California. 
because, again, he was the former Republican governor of California. And as a result, Eisenhower promised him that the first open seat on the Supreme Court would go straight to him. And guess what it did? Gross. Now, yeah. But this is not the only time that happened in recent history. As soon as he was sworn in, Lyndon Johnson wanted to get his friend and high-powered attorney, Abe Fortas, on the Supreme Court. But he didn't have any openings on the Supreme Court. So what did LBJ do? He heard that one of the current justices at the time, Justice Goldberg, didn't like it so much on the Supreme Court. So LBJ went to Justice Goldberg and he said, hey, would you like to be, instead of on the Supreme Court, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations? And Goldberg said, sure. So Goldberg resigned, was appointed to Ambassador to the U.N., and LBJ appointed his friend, Fortas. But the political connections don't end there. While on the court, Fortas didn't merely confer with the president. He attended meetings devoted to matters that might come before the court. And he actually missed conferences, those meetings that the justices have after they hear cases to decide where they are on things. Fortas missed conferences with the court in order to attend meetings at the White House with the president. That's... This is making so, me very angry. When we talk about how political the court is, this is what I'm talking about. These, This is way more political, politically involved than this court is right now. So let, we're not done with LBJ, right? LBJ wanted to get Thurgood Marshall, who became the first black justice on the court. At the time, and, and famously, Thurgood Marshall was the advocate who argued in the Brown v. Board of Education case, right? At that time, Thurgood Marshall was serving as Lyndon Johnson's solicitor general. This is the person who makes all the arguments for the government's case to the Supreme Court. LBJ wanted him. Elena Kagan was yes. one of those. Mm -hmm. LBJ wanted him to be a Supreme Court justice. So he got the current attorney general. Now, this is crazy, okay? He got the current attorney general who was serving under Johnson to resign, okay? And he moved that person to another position as undersecretary of state. Then he elevated someone who worked in the Justice Department, Ramsey Clark, to attorney general. Why did he do that? Well, Ramsey Clark was the son of a Supreme Court justice, Justice Tom C. Clark. Johnson had a talk with Justice Clark, explaining to him that he planned to appoint his son as attorney general, but that that might appear to be some sort of conflict. And that it was important for, you know, fathers to let their sons spread their wings and, and take on important roles. And so Clark, at age 67, perfectly healthy, resigned. And Johnson had his opening to put Thurgood Marshall on the court. I mean, he's literally moving these pieces on the board, you know. I am like very supportive chess. of 67-year-old retiring, though. But. <laughs> mm hmm all right, I've just got a few more, but as we're getting more modern, it's becoming more interesting, I think. So here's the next headline. Nixon investigating justices to pressure them to resign. So <laughs> It's like zero surprise there. <laughs> yeah. So as soon as Nixon was elected, he worked to get another open seat to fill on the Supreme Court. In the first week, the first week of Nixon's presidency, he got the IRS to audit one of the justices who was appointed by FDR, Justice William Douglas's tax returns. And he got the FBI to compile information on that same justice's dealings with a Las Vegas casino owner. Congress then got into the game of trying to take down William Douglas when two of Nixon's Supreme Court nominees were defeated. So there had been an opening on the court. I should just say this. And two of Nixon's nominees were defeated in Congress. So Nixon was pretty pissed. Other Republicans were pissed. So five days after their second nominee was defeated, Republican House Minority Leader Gerald Ford, ever heard of that guy? <laughs> he held a press conference calling on Douglas to be impeached. So now he wanted him to be impeached because the guy wouldn't resign. More than a hundred conservative congressmen sponsored a resolution to set up a special bipartisan committee to investigate Douglas. Now, this comes from uh, a book called The Brethren, written by Bob Woodward. Heard of that guy? <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness to our readers, if you're really interested in Supreme Court history, The Brethren is kind of one of the pieces of the last 
40 years to give that snapshot. Yeah, incredible. Written by Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong. Let's not forget him. It's true. All right. Last headline here. Judges lying or ignoring fact to reach a preferred decision. So there are some recent instances of that that we can talk about among our current courts. But the exact same thing was done with multiple judges agreeing in 1970, for example, when Justice Potter Stewart's clerks discovered that police had intimidated and coerced a suspect's wife in order to gain entry and search the premises. But the justices still wanted to stick to their preferred ruling and ignored and misstated the facts. Not just one justice, but multiple justices. This is like, I think, one of the parts that drives me the most crazy because... People assume everything that's in a majority decision opinion is just fact. Right. And that is just not true. No. So I do want to temper this with the, fa- with the question, you know, is the court always about politics? And the answer is no. In fact, the stories I've read show justices who are truly trying to understand the nature of the law. There are stories about that in the books that I've read. Um, for example, the book I read by Stephen Breyer, in particular, made me appreciate his thoughtful approach. His book, Making Our Democracy Work, almost seems like an instruction manual on how to be a good impartial justice. Which is coming a long way, because if you listen to Polylock episodes from, from when Justice Breyer resigned, yes, Brendan sang a very different too. Yes, I was very <laughs> critical of Breyer. It should also be noted that many of the most political-seeming appointees surprised their presidents. So, okay, I guess I did have one more story here. Teddy Roosevelt went through great trouble to get Oliver Wendell Holmes appointed to the court in 1902. And Teddy Roosevelt wrote of Holmes, quote, He has been a most gallant soldier, a most able and upright public servant, and in public and private life alike, a citizen whom we like to think of as typical of the American character at its best. Okay, this is what he said of Holmes before he appointed him. But after the successful appointment, Teddy Roosevelt was extremely disappointed in Holmes' opinion in one particular case, and Teddy Roosevelt famously said, Out of a banana... I could have carved a justice with more backbone than that. (laughs) I want to tell my enemies they have backbones made out of banana. (laughs) Incredible. That is so good. So there you are. Is the court more political now than it's been in the past? Is it of a different nature? Or has the Republican Party only improved its ability to appoint ideologically aligned justices who vote the way they intend? There's actually an exchange in the movie Nixon that comes to mind with these sorts of things when we're thinking about the current Supreme Court and what it's done and how it's working. Uh, In the scene, the movie Nixon, uh, Richard Nixon has just lost the 1960 election to John F. Kennedy. And Nixon is absolutely outraged. And he tells an old political friend that JFK cheated, that he stole the election. Goes to Harvard, his father hands him everything on a silver platter. All my life been sticking it to me. Not the right clothes, not the right schools, not the right family. Then he steals from me. (laughs) He says, I have no class. And they'll love him for it. Dick, you're only 47. If you contest this election, you'll be finished. You gotta swallow this one. They stole it fair and square. We'll get him next time, Dick. We'll get him next time. We can and we will, of course, go deep on the political nature of the current court and how I do think it is different in important ways from these past examples. And it's worth remembering when we look at all of this history that the court hasn't been static, right? As we mentioned, it's been reformed a ton of times and in dramatic ways. Every time the court is out of step with the American people, reform is not far away. The question is, how will the media help shape the American people's understanding of the court and the possibilities for change? I think what is very interesting about these examples is just how straight up political and conniving (laughs) these 
justices or presidents were in, in trying to shape the court. What maybe feels a little bit more unique to our current court or what we've seen in the last five to 10 years is kind of all the systems, systems surrounding the court reinforcing it at multiple levels, right? You have Senator McConnell refusing to give Merrick Garland any hearings, nomination hearings. You have candidate Trump outright saying he's going to appoint justices who are going to overturn Roe. What I'm asking you, sir, is do you want to see the court overturn? You've just said you want to see the court protect the Second Amendment. Do you want to see the court overturn Roe? Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be, that will happen. And that'll happen automatically, in my opinion, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court. I will say this, it will go He takes that list directly from the Federalist Society. Like, there are so many players who help enable and prop up the power of the court itself that it doesn't feel like a figure here or a figure there is political on the court, right? It's everything that we build going towards it that reinforces the power. It's like an integrated effort. Right, right. Yeah. For me, my big question was, how can people still hold this saintly idea of the court when all of this history is out there? And it's like not that far away. I mean, I think it goes back to like civics education as well. Like we barely get taught Supreme Court history. We just get taught the decisions. That's it. No, you're totally right about that. It really does go to to how we talk about history as well. There's not enough history in our political media. It should be so embarrassing how little we talk about history. And it can really help us understand these things because they're the same institutions. They might not be the same people, but they're the same institutions. And we've had so many different generations through our history interacting with these institutions, right? And they've been They've been trying to shape them, be sh- and they've been shaped by them, and they've tried to manipulate them in all the ways that politicians and people today are trying to do as well. You know, there are mm-hmm. ideas there because they're the same institutions, slightly tweaked or a little different. And so it's really helpful to understand where they come from, what the limits of their power are, how they can be manipulated, and it's just insane that this history isn't out there. And that we continue to, to think of the court as something that isn't political. It's insanely political. It's outrageously political and has been for a really long time. That doesn't mean that it, it doesn't fulfill its role to balance the executive and judiciary branches. It does do that. But the question is, is it doing that outside of politics? Is it doing that inside of politics? And if, it's, if it is a political institution, then we should stop pretending that it isn't. Because that just means that we're not holding it accountable. Right. And I think the other thing around a political institution and accountability is the majority of people are engaging with the court and reading about the court once a decision is made. Mm -hmm. Right. It's we're not learning about issues that are on their way to the court. We're not learning issues about justices kind of advocating for a certain thing in some private space and and being able to kind of advocate on that issue like it's just also matter of the fact what we know about them what we learn about them that it doesn't invite participation it doesn't invite engagement and so if you are unhappy or if you think that this power that you're describing is unacceptable there isn't a lot of opportunity to then do something about it to do something with that frustration and energy and discontent and that's where the need for accountability from the press is so crucial Exactly right. Yes. So what would be, do you have any recommendations? Like, how could the press put more history into its journalism without sounding like it's old news? Because history is old news. I mean, I'm just thinking of the different instances that we've talked about, right? So when there is an opening and there needs to be an appointment or there's a nomination and like doing these like lookbacks as to these interesting moments, right? Yeah, yeah. If there's an in conversation around like ethics, like doing a look back on other ethical issues. If you're doing a story on 
transformative cases. Like, I don't think enough people remember that Thurgood Marshall advocated on Brown versus Board of Education and also was the first black, like, connect the dots that the man who advocated on the issue then became a Supreme Court justice and what that means. You know, it'd be really fascinating to think of, like, some hugely transformational thing that Justice Kagan worked on and now she's a Supreme Court justice. I literally don't know a single case that she argued argued herself mm-hmm. right like i know she was solicitor general but i don't know like which cases started when during her term and you know what i mean like that is part of people's like like their own legacy and we don't even talk about their legacy when they're in the office itself exactly like how are we supposed to do it for history and also i don't think we should assume that all history is aimed at undermining the quote-unquote legitimacy of the court or like poking holes in the court which it sounded like we were doing here but i'm reading this book the brethren right now i'm very close to being done with it it's an extremely long book (laughs) it's so long it's very long but it's extremely good and the justices actually we can talk about it in more detail later but the justices actually spoke to bob woodward and scott armstrong the, the the reporters had reams and reams of internal memos, draft opinions, like unbelievable access. They spoke to hundreds of clerks and they covered the court in detail for like seven or eight years. I mean, it's unbelievable what they had. And then after the book came out, the justices hated it. There were reporters who hated it, who had covered the court and thought it was it was like treating them like. They were all politicians and it was not true and it was undermining the legitimacy of the court and all this. But the reality is, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stories in there about the justices making capricious decisions or ideological decisions. But you also appreciate the work that goes into what the court's actually doing. You understand the thinking that they have to employ as they're approaching these issues. I didn't know until I read the book that the Brown v. Board of Education was unanimous. I mean, actually I did because I had read some other history books before it, but the the decision was unanimous. Like the Earl Warren thought it was really important that that decision be unanimous to desegregate America's school system. But what I didn't realize until I read The Brethren was that not only was that decision unanimous, but every decision that the court made about desegregation after the Brown v. Board of Education decision was handed down, that was handed down in the 50s, the court made an effort to make unanimous for 10 to 15 years. And there were decisions left and right because it was hotly contested. There was even a Brown v. Board of Education too. There were two cases. But there were many, many after that. And every member of the court, no matter who they were appointed by, thought it was important to make any decision on that unanimous. I mean, my God, that is like, you've got to respect that. Any institution to do that and to be able to do it consistently as different members came onto the court. And even as they lost Earl Warren as Chief Justice and Chief Justice Berger came on, who was appointed by Nixon and was very different, he still continued that and made sure that their segregation cases, at least the early ones, were unanimous because it was so important. That raises respect for the court, you know? So I, I, I just, I want to see more of this history because it seems like you can't really understand it until you know the history. I agree, Brendan. And it just seems like such a lost opportunity as stories come up, as different things, new stories come up about the Supreme Court to bring that in and to welcome it yeah i think this is a a a good reminder that more perfect is coming out with a new season soon and they're so good about bringing that history and talking about that relevance now more perfect is the podcast by radio lab that focuses on the supreme court all right let's do it yep hey i'm jad abumrah this is more perfect mini series about the supreme court and um today's story from a reporter but there's just like it it's so unique because it's doesn't happen like people looking back on a case and bringing that history in its all its richness to make it tangible and understandable right exactly and that's why history when it comes to the court is even more important because it's so hard to get the the detailed reporting of what's happening on this court right now if you want to understand how the court operates 
you gotta look backwards. If you wanna know what it looks like from the inside, you've gotta get this history because the current court is so tightly closed that you're not gonna get in there and understand how they're making decisions and what they're thinking about. But you can understand how the court operates by looking back at how it dealt with other decisions. That's why the history is even more important now. So there we go. There's my little history lesson. Hopefully it was eye-opening. Burden has been dying for for this episode. So that's it for talking about judicial supremacy and... Politics. The politics, political nature of... Uh, judicial politics. Yeah. On our next episode of Polylog, we're going to talk about a moment in the Supreme Court where there usually is a lot of news coverage, and that's the appointment process. Yeah, there's so much to talk about there. It, it, it's probably going to be a few episodes on that topic, but it's a big topic and it's worth talking about. And just to be clear, we're going to be talking about politics throughout, but the apolitical nature of the court, we're not going to touch on as much. As much, right. Because it's not apolitical. Shh, that's Secret. a secret. Secrets, don't tell anyone. <laughs> if you want to tell us other non-secrets, you are welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at Beastidle on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at SotoNaomi underscore, and you can always follow the show at PolyLogCast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.